2: The Athletic
3: The trauma and the the devastation of that will live
4: with me forever
5: The entirety of the fan base is still got that kind of spirit of Sam Allardyce Wanting to get back to, to where we used to be
4: The guys that did
2: stay wanted to vent their spleen uh, At Allardyce. He doesn't buy into your club, you have to buy into him. So you sort of have to become supporters of Allardyce United.
6: And he knows what he wants, and if you're not on board, you're out of the door. In 1999,
2: Sam Allardyce
1: took over a Bolton team that had been relegated from the Premier League and whose previous manager had left you to disagreements with the board and were in significant financial trouble. Within six years, they become top flight stalwarts, qualifying for European competition and had become the go-to destination for international superstars whose careers needed a little reviving. Bolton remain Allardyce's crowning achievement, and almost all the successes he achieved after that come with a selection of caveats. But in that time, Big Sam became one of the most compelling figures in English football. I'm James McNicholas and welcome to part 2 of Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. Let's start then at the moment just before Sam became Bolton boss. It's September '99, and Colin Todd has just resigned as Bolton manager, unhappy at the sale of midfielder Per Franson to Blackburn. A sale deemed necessary by the owners as the club attempts to mitigate the financial disparity between the first and second tiers of English football. Todd's assistant, Phil Brown, took over as caretaker, winning four of his six games in charge. So when he was called in for a meeting, there was a pep in his step.
0: I got told to be at the Reebok Stadium by the owners uh, one Sunday morning. I thought I was going to get the job.
1: Four years earlier, the pair had been together at Blackpool. So when Brown arrived to see Sam sitting in the manager's office, well... It came as a huge shock.
0: That must have been the look on my face. It was like he had gone to Notts County and done a great job. He had gone and um, got an opportunity at Notts County and, and got promoted in record time, if you remember rightly.
1: And so, Phil's in the office with the owners and Sam, not being given the job he expected. Instead, he's told,
0: "We're not giving you the position, but we're offering you the chance to work with Sam again." And after about an hour, me and him just sitting there, not not the other two. Me and him just sitting there, we, we decided to uh, work together again. And I'm glad we did because we had an unprecedented success at Bolton Wanderers after that.
1: You probably know the story from there. Bolton won promotion through the playoffs in 2001, spent a couple of years surviving before becoming top flight stores and became the very essence of classic era Premier League years football, as Allardyce built a disparate team of aging pros, willing youngsters, and implausible global stars. Yuri Djokovic was the first, arriving in February 2002, as he jostled for a place in France's World Cup squad. JJ Akocha followed. Then Ivan Campo, Fernando Hiero, Bruno Ngotti, Ibrahim Barr, and Vincent Candela. In summary, Big Sam's Bolton achieved four successive top eight finishes, along with a League Cup final and a couple of appearances in the UEFA Cup. For a Bolton fan, those were extraordinary days. We
5: had some decent years under Bruce Rioch and Colin Todd uh, before Sam other dies.
1: Here's Joe Crilly, a lifelong Bolton fan.
5: There was never really an identity Certainly, from 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 when I started supporting the club in the uh, in the early 90s, there was never really an identity until Sam Allardyce took over, and that personality that he had has remained with the club. We still love thinking about the times that we beat Arsenal. We still love thinking about the times that we beat Liverpool and Manchester United. And to be honest, uh, that the the entirety of the fan base is like still got that kind of spirit of sam allardyce kind of we're we're kind of wanting to get back to to where we used to be
1: those were the years when the allardyce method was well established but while the perception of his success was built around the cult of his personality which in turn fed his own significant ego in reality it was his ability to realize his own limitations that allowed him to flourish
7: and he always had one big sin and i've always remembered it and i use it myself now is that you have to employ somebody better than you in the key areas that you're trying to to, to, to deliver.
1: Mark Taylor, Allardyce's performance director at Bolton.
7: You know, so you would always find a better coach. Maybe it's defensive areas or a better coach in, in midfield and a better, certainly a better goalkeeping coach than he would be. And same with strikers, you know, he would always employ people better than him and that would make him better.
1: I think he had such good staff around him. You remember Kevin Davis, a fulcrum of Aldice's team, who we essentially recovered from the scrap heap in 2003 and who went on to play for England.
8: You know, there was Mike Ford, who was a kind of... it was sports psychologist, I guess, but not in the old-fashioned terms. So all the data would be gathered from previous seasons and we knew exactly what we needed to do in terms of games against the bottom six, games against the top what kind of runs you'd have to go on you'd get three or four players getting 10 premier league goals so you weren't over relying on one so all these kind of things were put into us at the start start of the season what the requirements were cuz it wasn't just about staying in the league for us we wanted to you know push into the top half and be successful um, so we had those kind of people around we had you know Carlos Satori, who's at man city now doing all the sports rehab and massage and you know all those kind of things we had a couple of guys in from asia doing like all the acupuncture. Mark Howard was a fitness coach. He was at Burnley now. So you see how fit they are. Andy Barr's in the States now doing all stuff with, you know, big sports stars over there. So he had all these top staff and then all the analysts on top of that as well who are now at Liverpool and City and dotted around the world. He had all these people working for him to make, you know, the team better.
1: If that sounds like a lot of staff, that's because it was Phil Brown.
0: We were in the war room, what we called the war room, at Bolton Wanderers and there was a circular table and whenever you presented you got in the middle of these cir- this, this circle of people and you had you had all the touch screens and you know videos and you name it whatever you needed techno- technology wise you had but this war room was the staff meeting room on a Monday morning and we were we were all sitting in I started the meeting at 8 o'clock and uh, turned to Sam uh, with minutes and stuff like that from the last meeting and I turned to Sam and he's f***ing and he's in, in fits of laughter you know he's chuckling away and he, when he chuckled and laughed his shoulders used to go up and down and, I, and I, before, before I started I, mean, I said what the f excuse my French by the way I said what the f- are you are laughing at and he went count how many people's in the room Brownie <laughs> there was 36, 36 people in the room and we had started at Blackpool with 4
1: Allardyce famously led the way in English football when it came to sports science and statistics, which informed the way his Bolton side played. Here's the Athletics Stat Man, Tom Werville explaining it on the Athletics Zonal Marking podcast.
9: I remember one one anecdote or example of kind of how Allardyce would use use pro zone, I guess use data back then is I think they used to analyse kind of when the ball was pumped forward to say Kevin Davis or whoever's up there they look at how often the ball would be cleared to different zones of the pitch and then would essentially time runs or, or place players and get them to make moves into certain zones based on where the ball would land, which is just really like fairly basic but smart analysis to understand okay, how can we win more second balls, regain more possessions and, and, and kind of keep attacks going for longer. And that's the kind of work that you know more and more clubs will be doing in-house now.
1: By his glory years, use of such tools was commonplace. The danger was that everyone else would catch up. But because Allardyce had been using them for years and was so well-versed in them, he retained an edge.
9: There was an interview of sorts with, with Allardyce a couple of years ago with um, stats, and he was kind of saying that in the 1990-2000 season if you used statistical analysis you could gain 5-10% to 10% in terms of performance because no one was using it. And that, back then, that that wasn't a marginal game. That, that was a large gain. But now, because everyone's got access to, to stats and analytics and, and video and they are hiring you know, more people in these roles, it's not a gain if you use it or don't. The gain is how well you can integrate it into your processes compared to, to your rivals, which is a big change. But I think that we're seeing that the teams that have very well thought out, very bought into Analysis workflows across recruitment, across first team, um, are getting the most value out of it. Sam's use
1: of statistics was used most notably to his advantage when it came to recruitment. Back to performance director Mark Taylor.
7: One example we used was, was Gary Speed. Gary Speed was, was available from Newcastle. And everybody was saying, OK, well, you know, he's 32. He's in the in, in that sort of early 2000s, you know, players weren't, weren't, weren't. Carrying on their the careers into the 35, 36 years, we had all of his data. So we knew that this player hadn't dropped off at all. We could see his physical and technical data had, had, had improved the older he got. So we knew that there wasn't a risk there. So it isn't just about, you know, the technology and, and what you're doing. It's actually how you're looking at the data.
1: And that's how one of Bolton's most glamorous signings came about.
7: We would often pick up players in different positions, and he would know that he could play the player position from, a, from a, a wing back, if you like, to a full back or a full back to a winger. Fernando Hierro was one, one example that we managed to get in from Madrid, and he was just typically a, a centre back. But in the Premier League, obviously, his, his, his speed and his agility wasn't wasn't something that would be suited. But Sam knew that if you could put him in front of a back four, that then he wouldn't need to be this this dynamic dynamic player. He could be a holding midfield player, and we could use his, his technical ability and his physical ability would be okay in, in set piece scenarios. You know that was something that he would do regularly. Uh, he would bring he would bring players in from other clubs that weren't particularly suited to, to the position they'd been playing in. And then again, that was down to data collection, analysing the data that was out there uh, and fitting it into a a model that Sam was looking at.
1: It should be noted that not all of those big-name signings worked out. Mario Jardel arrived in 2003 with an absurd scoring record with Porto, Galatasaray and Sporting behind him. But he played seven games and didn't find the net once. Jardel told The Athletic's Jack Lang... I had been a regular starter for every team I'd played for in the previous 10 years, so always being on the bench was hard. It gave me anxiety. You play for all these big teams, then you arrive in Bolton, and the guy leaves
9: you on the bench every week? Above
1: all of this, arguably Allardyce's greatest strength at Bolton, the one that allowed him to fit all of those players into a cohesive team, was his ability to connect with and motivate players from all backgrounds.
7: His man management is still the same. His ability to connect with characters, players who have a strong ego. He's he's very good at managing those types of players because they're always deemed to be the difficult players. You know, one example would be Nicholas Anelka, who came with a reputation when we signed him at sport Wanderers. They called it the La Sulte. But he was anything but that. Once, once Sam, it eyeballed him, which is what he calls what he does when he sits in front of players, when he when he interviews them as such before they come to the club. He knows. Uh, and then it
0: was a case of understanding the player's profile and getting the best out of him. The training ground at Bolton Wanderers was just a great place to come into. Phil Brown. You wanted to come to work. You wanted to come to work, and it was. And it was catering for. I mean, you've got all these wonderful training grounds now. We were way ahead, way ahead. The one thing Sam was, he was a businessman. So whenever we sold a player like Alan Thompson to Villa, he asked the club, just give me a percentage of, you know, you can keep the the transfer, you know, the profits from the transfer, just give me a percentage so I can invest back into the training ground and keep the players that I've got at the club happy. So we sold. Um, Tomo for four million, uh, Ada Good Johnson for four million, Klaus Jensen for three million, and every time he sold a player, one hundred and fifty grand would go into the training ground, one hundred and ten grand, one hundred and twenty-five, and it would be a better place when these players had left.
5: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. After eight years at Bolton,
1: Allardyce moved on, a disagreement over transfer budgets, the final straw in the realization that he could take them no further. Next, was Newcastle, Big Sam's big step up. But things went wrong from the start. It didn't ever feel like a sort of comfortable fit. This is George Culkin, senior football writer for The Athletic, who covered Sam's time
2: at both Sunderland and Newcastle. And I think, you know, the way I've always put it is that he doesn't buy into your club, you have to buy into him. So you sort of have to become supporters of Allardyce United as opposed to him sort of bending to the club that he's at. And I think that was part of the problem at Newcastle. There was still that, you know, the the free-flowing football of the Keegan era was, was still relatively fresh in the memory. Same with Bobby when they were in the Champions League. And it was Dower and he was Dower, And so it felt like an, a kind of unhappy marriage. But the biggest thing, you know, the, really the biggest thing, was that he arrived and then Mike Ashley immediately... Uh, replaced uh, the regime that brought him in. And he says that quite openly. I mean, I, I interviewed him a couple of times when he was at Sunderland and he and he said, because of the change of ownership, I was lost. I didn't know where to go, how to go about what I needed to do. The plan went out of the window. I was in survival mode. And it that's exactly what it felt like. The inevitable came
1: halfway through his sole season at St. James's Park. A failed experiment brought to a close mercifully swiftly. Blackburn came next, another job that ended in tears after new owners arrived. But by now, nobody could appoint Allardyce without knowing what they were getting. Debates over his style of play, whether or not he was or is actually a long ball merchant, will continue in perpetuity. But what is certain is the type of manager you will get when you call Big Sam.
6: I saw what he was doing. I liked the fact that the football was simple, the clear messages. And it was about getting three points.
1: Aussie midfielder Vince Grella, who played under Allardyce at Blackburn.
6: You know what? The ones that rubbed up not quite in the right way, probably the next year were not there. Because he was, you know, when he has to be, he can be a fucking ruthless bastard. You know, like he can, he's, a, he's a very strong man and he knows what he wants. And if you're not on board, you're f***ing out of the door. Yeah, when he's in charge he's in charge I like that as well there's the authority there plus he's a big man so when he talks the walls shake you know what I mean he you know if he gets pissed off then you know you better be uh, you better be careful
1: Blackburn was also arguably when the idea of Allardyce the firefighter emerged of Allardyce the fixer The man you bring in when things are going really wrong who will clean things up. Rovers had suffered a terrible start to the season under Paul Ince, so when he was sacked with relegation a real possibility, something had to be done. And in the view of their chairman, John Williams, that something was Sam Allardyce. We can't go down, Williams told Stephen Warnock, after misgivings were expressed about their potential style of play. Those four words basically explain the majority of the latter part of Allardyce's career. It's a job he did well at Blackburn, but brilliantly at Sunderland and Crystal Palace, the clubs that sandwiched the England debacle.
2: They were desperate for him. I mean, they were desperate for him. They are Sunderland and the voice is George Colkin all the niceties that I mentioned about Newcastle didn't matter because they were used to being shit. I mean, being shit was not an issue. What they needed was to be better. And um, and so he was, he was kind of welcomed as a saviour there. It was a club that had just lacked any semblance of order. And he started to bring order and players bought into it. They talked about the certainties that they were given. They talked about that they all knew their jobs and that is such a such an important thing. I mean it sounds like such a basic but you have to sort of you have to sort of remember the absolute crisis and it was going from crisis to crisis to crisis. It was that kind of cycle of miracle, crisis, miracle, crisis and I use miracle in its least sort of miraculous sense. There, I mean as if sort of staying up and losing again is a miracle and it's not but his feeling of home at Sunderland wasn't necessarily just about the club it was about himself in his own mind you know that he can put himself in that position now and enjoy it you know that the worry is still there that you can lose and all that kind of stuff but he was much more he was much more sort of comfortable in his own skin I felt at Sunderland than he was it at Newcastle and and it showed. Further down the line, the situation was similar but at the same time
1: different with both West Ham and Everton. He was called in when both were in trouble. West Ham had already been relegated and needed to get promoted quickly by any means necessary, while Everton were in danger of the drop and were desperate to prevent it. The difference between those two clubs and Sunderland and Palace was that West Ham and Everton aspired to more. They were clubs that, broadly speaking, saw themselves as above Allardyce's methods in some ways. They needed him to save them, but resented the idea of him taking them any further. They wanted him to rebuild the walls,
4: but not necessarily do the decorating. But the film, high up at Goodison was that Everton were not too good to go down, that they needed a guy like Sam Allardyce in charge to pull them out of the mire. Patrick Boyland, Everton correspondent for The Athletic. Now, Allardyce became a sort of necessary evil, a relegation firefighter. He likes he liked to be seen as that himself and he, he'll point to his impeccable record of keeping sides up. He did it with Sunderland, did it with various other sides. And the feeling was that he would do that in the short term. Stabilise Everton while they waited for a Marco Silva or another manager to come available. And that's what happened over the, the next summer. Silva had left Watford at that point and was ready, available and willing to take the job. Those two jobs also perhaps
1: represented the peak of Allardyce's indignation when he's rejected by an employer. At both clubs, he's argued extensively, he did the job that was asked of him was dismissed
4: anyway. He, he came in, and he started winning games more or less straight away. The first match beat Huddersfield Town. Second game drew away at Liverpool. In slightly fortuitous circumstances, Liverpool had about 80% of the ball. Everton won a late penalty, which, which Wayne Rooney scored, and it was a bit of a, a smash and grab point, all things considered. That earned him a bit of respect, but still you would hear people saying, this is not the kind of football I want to see at Everton. I don't want to see Everton go to Anfield and and have 19% of the ball or whatever it was, there was a feeling almost that he was beneath Everton, that that style of play was not suited to an institution that holds itself in high regard. And that's when you knew that this guy can't really win here. He, he, He can win matches, but he's not gonna be able to ever fully convince unless he completely changes approach, changes tack, goes a different way with his own management. He he more or less can't win, he's not gonna be able to, to get the fans on side.
1: The nadir of his time at Goodison came in an away game against Arsenal. By the 37th minute, Everton were 4-0 down, and any patience the wider fan base had with him had disappeared.
5: Welcome to Toffee TV to the intermatch reaction. Arsenal five, Everton one. Uh, what what an absolute shit joke. What an absolute disgrace.
4: The, the aim effectively was to shut up shop and do what they did against Liverpool which was keep the opposition out and keep them at bay for as long as possible. Very defensive, very pragmatic and if you do that with Everton and you get results then people will kind of begrudgingly accept it but not if you're 4-0 down after, <laughs> after 37 minutes and even after half time the away end was basically empty. The guys that did stay wanted to vent their spleen uh, at Allardyce and the players, it must be said as well, because it was a really meek, feeble performance from them.
1: But of course, even that low point could never match what happened with England. It was a silly thing to do, but um, just to let everybody know, I sort
3: of helped out what was a somebody I'd known for 30 years and unfortunately it was an error in judgement on my behalf and uh, paid the consequences but
10: i think he always felt he was not going to get the england job oliver kay
1: senior football writer for the athletic
10: because of this reputation and then he he got he got the england job and i think it was the sort of the big samness um if i could put it that way that you know the big sam <laughs> will sit and have a drink with anybody and talk his mind to anybody um i think that is exactly what got him out of the england job which i think by the way was was a a, a ridiculous Scenario and a ridiculous dismissal. What, what anybody thinks about whether he should have got the job in the first place? I think it was. A, I think it was a preposterous business, a preposterous overreaction by the FA to a to a newspaper sting.
1: You remember the story? Allardyce was filmed by journalists from the Daily Telegraph posing as businessmen, supposedly suggesting ways to circumvent rules surrounding third-party ownership of players. Allardyce himself disputes that. And it was a very long way from being a clear case. The
3: uh, trauma and uh, the devastation of that will live with me forever. But
1: Here's um, Sam speaking about the incident to the Oxford Union in 2020.
3: It's difficult to talk to about the FA because I have a confidentiality agreement. But yes, I, I think they could have been or should have been able to sit back for a while and assess the situation, which is exactly what they said they would do but didn't. And there we have it. So... I always say this, if I did anything wrong why did they pay me off? And so I can only come to the conclusion that they, they panicked under their, that circumstance because of the pressure they were put under by everybody that I had actually done all these so-called things that I hadn't done. And it was a very, very dark moment of my, my life of course. So I felt um, the best job in the world, the most privileged in the world. And the happiest in the world of football, i within 67 days, found out it was a poison chalice. So I felt the two, the two feelings of that position in, in a short period of time. But I have got a 100% record.
1: We'll always wonder how it might have gone had Allardyce stayed. What might Allardyce's England have looked like? On the Zonal Marking podcast, the Athletic's resident tactician, Michael Cox, wasn't convinced.
11: He played Wayne Rooney, I think, as a number 10 first half, and then he shifted into more of a midfield role. And he was asked about that afterwards, and he said, well, it's not for me to say, you know, it's not for me to tell Wayne Rooney where to play. You know, Rooney, Rooney kind of takes those decisions himself or something. And I was like, I was so baffled by the fact that he would say that after a period of four or five years where we'd constantly been worried about basically Rooney having too much free reign and dominating the England side too much. And that was a concern because he hadn't really coached top players in their prime years before and he'd always made a big thing of oh I'm not suited to Bolton and Blackburn if he put me at a big club I could do a job there as well well that was a big job and obviously he he lost his job in slightly unfortunate circumstances but even just his his attitude for that one game I thought was a slight concern so I must say I wasn't uh, entirely displeased when that was the end of it for him sadly. Oliver Kay,
10: I doubt he will ever get over the disappointment He, he will he will Think about it every day. He will regret it every day. Having spoken to him, I mean, he, he's he's so, he's incredibly thick-skinned and and is and is you know, you know I think he showed by going to Crystal Palace within a, a few months, wasn't it, and and and, and turned them round straight away. And it was as if he'd never been away. It was you know we've seen England managers before, seeing seeming utterly broken by by struggling you know graham taylor never really seemed like the same manager again glenn Hodley, i don't think ever seemed like the same manager again post england and ericsson didn't and mclaren didn't and you know i think fabio capello seemed sort of diminished by the sort of um, roller coaster ride of managing england allardyce undoubtedly felt like you know has felt Crestfallen by by what what happened and what and what what he did and, and the consequences of what he said and the consequences of that, but I think in terms of actually picking himself up, dusting him down, himself down, and just getting back to being <laughs> Sam Allardyce on, on the on the training ground or on the touchline, I think he did that as good as almost anybody.
1: And now, Big Sam is back again, back in the Premier League, back trying to save another club that has got themselves into a mess. In the third and final part of this series, we consider Sam Allardyce's place in the fabric of English football.
0: He's going to probably uh, leave that legacy of survival campaigns in the Premier League.
4: Ponder why he keeps coming back. Being a Premier League football manager looks very difficult, very complicated, very time consuming, really boring at times. And
1: wonder whether this job is one too far, even for Big Sam.
9: I think West Brom thought, well, at least least Allardyce might get them a bit more organised, a bit harder to beat.
1: You've been listening to part two of a three-part series of Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. You can listen to parts one and three now, and you can find it ad-free via The Athletic. If you're not already a subscriber, head to theathletic.com beyond to see our latest offers. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss out on future editions of the podcast. Beyond the Headline was produced by Abby Patterson for The Athletic. It was written by Nick Miller. The executive producer was Ian McIntosh.
11: Athletic.